The national initiative to build community trust and justice began just a year after Ferguson. The initiative aimed to improve criminal justice outcomes and police community relations in six cities. Now the results are in. Did it work? And what can we learn as we look for ways to improve the whole system? That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice. I'm David Harris, your total justice geek and your personal guide to our very messy criminal justice system. And still lucky as lucky can be to have that day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. And before we get into the episode, we want you to become a member and supporter of what we do here on Criminal Injustice. Go to our Patreon link at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice where you can join up, get access to extra content like our special series on the criminal justice platforms of the 2020 candidates for president and much more. First hundred people to join get a signed copy of my book, Failed Evidence, Why Law Enforcement Resists Science. Let's go back to the summer of 2014. In just a few short months, Eric Garner died in a police chokehold on Staten Island, saying, I can't breathe. Michael Brown died in Ferguson in a hail of bullets in a confrontation with a police officer. And from that point, it did not seem to stop. 12-year-old Tamir Rice in Cleveland, Walter Scott running away and shot in the back in North Charleston, South Carolina, And unfortunately, so many more. Now, we've talked on criminal injustice about a number of important efforts to change things. These efforts coming in the wake of the events that I just talked about. For example, President Obama's task force on 21st century policing. Our episode 58 guest, Ronald Davis, was the executive director of that task force, as well as the head of the Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services, and also the Obama administration's pledge to get body cameras to police officers with a $75 million program. Then in 2014 came the announcement of the National Initiative to Build Community Trust and Justice, an ambitious effort to test some of the leading approaches around criminal justice reform in a measurable way on the ground, backed by United States Department of Justice funding. It didn't originate with Ferguson, but boy, was it ever timely. Here's some audio from the day of the public announcement of the national initiative. This is from the PBS NewsHour. Community policing is a strategy that has uh, several components to it. First, it's, a, it's a, supposed to be a community-based strategy, one that gets in community and residents involved in developing strategies for public safety. Number two is, is that it's collaborative. Uh, not only are citizens and neighborhoods going to be involved in that, but there are going to be other partners that's going to also be working with them to develop strategies around public safety. And then thirdly, uh, it's about changing the police department, not only on the outside in terms of what it does every day and how it does it, but more importantly, it's about changing the police department to facilitate what it does on the outside. And the example—one of the quickest examples would be that a police department, a traditional police department, measures uh, performance by, say, tickets and number of arrests and all of that. 
Well, in the community policing model, tickets and the number of arrests don't necessarily mean that a community and the people who live there feel safe. So it's a more comprehensive approach to developing public safety strategies. In 2015, the National Initiative announced that it had picked six cities for that initiative. Minneapolis, Fort Worth, Texas, Stockton, California, Birmingham, Alabama, Gary, Indiana, and Pittsburgh, right here where we're based. And the program got underway with community meetings and lots of new training for police in each of those cities. Now, there was another important feature to this effort. Unlike so many other projects before it, this one would be measured. As part of the package, the Department of Justice brought in an independent, reputable organization with deep experience measuring implementation and outcomes in public institutions, especially in the justice system. And that outfit, the Urban Institute of Washington, D.C., did the comprehensive pre-initiative and post-initiative measurements. And that gives us a chance to really understand what the national initiative accomplished. Our guest today headed up the evaluation team, and he's going to tell us about the results. Jesse Janetta is a senior policy fellow in the Justice Policy Center at the Urban Institute, where he leads projects on prison and jail reentry, community-based violence reduction strategies, and community supervision. And as I said, he led the implementation assessment component of the National Initiative to Build Community Trust and Justice, along with his colleagues Nancy Levine and Jocelyn Fontaine. He's also one of the co-authors of the reports on the results. He's a veteran evaluator of justice system initiatives of many types, such as the Violence Reduction Strategy in Chicago and the Los Angeles Gang Reduction Effort. Prior to joining the Urban Institute, Mr. Janetta was a research specialist at the Center for Evidence-Based Corrections at the University of California at Irvine, where he evaluated a number of different justice system initiatives in the correction system. Jesse Janetta, welcome to Criminal Injustice. It's great to be here, David. I'm so glad you are. So let's just roll it all the way back to the beginning. The National Initiative to Build Community Trust and Justice, three-year effort announced with great fanfare in 2014. Six cities are chosen, Minneapolis, Fort Worth, and all the rest, and Pittsburgh, and they get started on it in 2015. What were the goals of the initiative? What did it set out to do? So what the what the national initiative was was scoped to do was to go right at the problem of deep mistrust that exists in so many places between uh, the justice system in general, but particularly law enforcement and particularly communities of color. This has a long history of many uh, terrible incidents, but also a, a long history of a lot of communities feeling, and I think in practice. Uh, being correct to feel that law enforcement was not there to protect them in the same way as they are uh, other communities. And what the uh, what the Department of Justice and the partners wanted to do in the national initiative is put together a package. And one of the reasons uh, of the timing there was not only the things uh, that were happening world, the high-profile police killings, that happened in, in many places around the United States, but also a sense that the practice and the research support for some interventions around trust building had gotten to a point where it made sense to try and combine them and go big with them uh, to really see if we could make some headway in reducing that mistrust. So there was a lot of the work in the National Initiative 
framed around the concept of legitimacy. Uh, could we uh, put in place interventions that would make communities feel that what law enforcement was doing was legitimate, that it was right and okay uh, the way that they were operating, and it was in a way that, that the community would find that to be to be trustworthy, or more trustworthy at least than, than when they started. So that bedrock concept of trust that has to exist between police and communities, supported by a an equitable, fair, and respectful type of policing, and all connected in this idea of legitimacy of the police from the get-go. So the national initiative was looking for impacts on crime. Uh, what else? So I mean, I want to I want to foreground the trust piece, and there is a lot of reason to believe in research that. When you have more trusting relationship, you get more cooperation between uh, police and communities that has beneficial uh, impacts on the ability to both prevent and also solve crimes. And so very much in mind was that, you know, if the national initiative was really doing everything that it was scoped to do, that you would see those things. But it did try and put in the foreground the community piece. You know, one of the things that's powerful about legitimacy as a concept is policing or anything else that the government is doing is legitimate if the community, if people, you know, in the public feel that it is. And there was, I think, a strong sense always in the work that we wanted to, as much as possible, see the benefits in terms of reduced crime and victimization, in terms of greater cooperation, but that increasing legitimacy, increasing people's sense of trust in communities, in the police was an important end in itself because people deserve to live, they deserve to live in a society where they feel like that policing power is in a sense on their side and they can trust it and it's there to to support their safety and not uh, to potentially do some things that are harmful to the community. Absolutely. And there's so many examples over so many years, not just in the last five years since Ferguson, of the police kind of being on the wrong end of that. And I think police were desirable. Excuse me. Three, two, one. I think police wanted this, too. Uh, They also wanted to be seen as legitimate and to work uh, in support of communities. So why were the six cities uh, that we laid out, why were those chosen? Uh, they're the worst. They're the best. Uh, what would what, how how was that choice made? So we weren't looking for places, um, and I am using we, and we'll talk about our appendant role as evaluator, but we were at the table as part of this to observe the way it un- unfolded from the beginning. We weren't looking for either the best or the worst, and in some ways we wanted places that were in the middle. Our sense of the problem was that this kind of mistrust that we're talking about exists with different contours, but almost in any city, if not every city in the United States that you can think of. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, you know, as you're often doing in a multi-site demonstration, as much as as six places can stand in for the country, part of what we want is the ability to try this work out in a variety of contexts. At the end of the day, as much as possible, we wanted a group of places that any other city in the United States or any other community in the United States could look at and say, we can see ourselves Uh here. The work that was done there will be relevant to us. And that involves variation in terms of size, in terms of geography. And a really key thing, of course, is the level of commitment from the police departments. We'll get into this when we talk about what they actually had to do. But a lot was asked, particularly of the police departments. And I think it's important Mm -hmm. to note the national initiative 
was not a grant program. Eventually, DOJ came up with, I think, on the order of $50,000 per site to support the time of a local coordinator of the work. But other than that, everything that was done, all the things that we'll describe as we go on, were done with own resources. And so there really had to be that commensurate level of commitment in the participating cities and departments to do all of that work without getting additional resources to do so. So it was commitment, leadership, resources, and then also geographically spread out. You have some in the West, some in the Midwest, some in the East, and you got three basic sizes, the larger uh, Minneapolis and Fort Worth departments, the midsize in Birmingham and Pittsburgh, and then Stockton and Gary, uh, sort of on the smaller end. That, that makes a lot of sense if what you're trying to do is to prove it out over a lot of different contexts. And, you know, I did mention right from the top, too, that, the, you know, obviously the history of mistrust in policing and communities is highly racialized. And I said communities yes. of color, and there can be a tendency to put that together. Obviously, the African-American experience with policing is very long and painful in the United States. But in Stockton, you had a substantial uh, Filipino-American population, for example, that had a long and difficult mm. history of relationship with Stockton. Uh, Latino populations at substantial size in Fort Worth and Stockton. Large urban Native American population in Minneapolis, for example, that had a long and difficult history. Yes. So part of this, too, was also wanting to be able to think about and do work around all the different communities. And obviously, you can't do all, but to make sure that you're thinking about the varied experiences that different racial and ethnic or, you know, gender uh, victimization communities have had with the police and, and pick places where you're able to dig into some of that as well. Absolutely. That's a great point, you know, because so often we reduce uh, questions of racial or ethnic tension to black-white. And it's very tempting to do that where I'm standing here in Pittsburgh because uh, we don't have or haven't had substantial populations uh, you know, of, uh, of of people of color who are not African American. The the others are fairly tiny, so we don't want to gloss over that. You're right to raise that, and it was an important thing for them to do. So, what were the the sort of core things that they were doing? The core endeavors. I understand it's kind of like a three legged stool. You had three basic things that these police departments uh, pledged to do. Right. So, and I, there was a lot, and I think in some ways the, the easiest way, or at least what I, the way I try to cut it in my head, is at three levels. So you had interventions that were really about the individual officer level. Primarily around that was officer training. There were three full days of training in a sequence, and they generally ran through the entire department for the first day before moving on to, to the next. So the first two days of that training were really around the concept of procedural justice, which is a way of exercising authority that builds legitimacy. The components of it are around treating people with dignity and respect, giving them voice and opportunity to tell their side of the story in an interaction with authority. Uh, communicating and acting on neutral and trustworthy uh, motivations, and also around having transparency in the decision-making that you're doing. So there were two days of training that every sworn officer in all of these departments went through around procedural justice, and that included in the first component of it a uh, pretty robust training uh, curriculum component about the history of policing and communities in the United States, going back to slave catching, talking about lynching, and all of yes, the history the that history. has gone around mm -hmm. that, in including in each of the cities, 
a part that was tailored to there. So not just the history of policing in the United States, but let's talk a little bit about specifically what's happened in Pittsburgh, or let's talk about specifically what's happened in Minneapolis. Obviously, you talk about Birmingham and its civil rights history. That's a deep history. Absolutely. Second piece was much more tactical about procedural justice. And then the third piece was um, around understanding and thinking about how you might do a little bit to counter uh, implicit bias and the way that it operates. So these were really things you're bringing in all the individual officers and the contribution of that is changing their thinking and skill set around how they're interacting with the public. But of course, you're unlikely to be in a situation where just if all the individual officers are doing everything different, then that's going to be fine. The second level you might think of is the department as a whole. There was a lot of work around thinking about policy changes that needed to be made and advancing an organizational culture change to orient what the department as a whole does around some of the core concepts like procedural justice. And the final layer that I would say is really around bridging uh, police and community. The National Initiative included the development and fielding of a citywide reconciliation process in each city that had a component around fact-finding, sort of bringing together the information about what the history on harms of policing had been historically, but also in the present day, a public acknowledgement of the harm that had been done by policing in that city uh, by the chief of police. And then really at the core of it, listening sessions, bringing in groups of people in the communities that have had a difficult and harmful history of interactions with the policing to hear from them and then translate what they were saying in, you know, feeding back into it, into policy changes and other changes uh, that needed to be made. So not just hearing, but hearing in order to enact changes so that you could come back and create a virtuous circle where, you know, people in communities have had a history of having policing in various ways imposed upon them or feel like a, a harm producing outside force are now being able to bring their concerns to the fore and see changes happening in response to that. So right. just that. <laughs> yeah, just that. So uh, to kind of sum it up, you have procedural justice work, you have implicit bias work, and you have that reconciliation piece, all crucial, all kind of connected to each other, and hopefully the people who have uh, who are on the ground and living there see things improve and see themselves heard. So all this goes on over the course of these several years. Um, and what was to be the role of the Urban Institute, your organization, uh, particularly in all of this? Right. So we were in the role of the independent evaluator. So there were three organizations, the National Network for Safe Communities at John Jay, the Justice Collaboratory at Yale Law School, and the Center for Policing Equity, who were sort of the holders of the interventions, designing them and helping the sites to field them. And then we were the fourth partner is an independent evaluator, not part of the implementation, but observing and measuring and trying to do the knowledge building on two very broad questions. I would say one, of course, is did it work? Did it produce some of the impacts and outcomes that were hoped for that we've already talked about? Mm -hmm. But also sort of what happened? Sometimes you can get an evaluation and maybe the question, did it work, gets answered, but what was it anyway, uh, is sometimes left a little bit unclear. And the national initiative was a new thing. It can it included some components that had been done in different places and already tested, but there were other pieces. So the reconciliation process 
that I mentioned was designed as part of the national initiative. That did not exist. It hadn't been specified coming in. And these things had never been combined all together. So it it's was a totally new animal. Right. We need to look at and be able to, in a sense, tell the story of how this rolled out, because when you have a new thing, obviously, does it generate the impacts you want is a key question. But how did that happen? And how, if there is signs that you have something here, how might another place go about doing it? That's a very key piece of the knowledge. And Absolutely. so we tried to have an approach, right, that was attentive to both. Yeah. So in order to do that, you've got to have all the facts to be able to tell the whole story. And then you've got you've to collect data uh, so that you have a baseline. And that data for you folks at Urban involved certain crime indicators and then a really interesting community survey. Tell us about both of those things. Sure. So the logic is that, you know, a lot of the trust building work should be manifesting itself in measurable things that are happening in the city or that police are doing. So we were asking for data on crime rates, obviously, things like use of force, things about pedestrian stops or traffic stops, and not only the number of stops, but also we were interested in questions around disparity since looking at implicit bias was a piece of this. So to see whether there was any change in the racial or ethnic composition Always of who was being stopped. Always a big question in criminal justice, yes. Right. And so to get that police administrative data was a key part of it and see what had happened in it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we've been talking about things around trust and legitimacy, and those are, you know, perceptions and ways that are seeing and feeling the world that community residents have. And if you want to know what's happening with them, you really, there's no substitute for going out and directly asking them. So as you mentioned, we uh, developed with input from the partners, because obviously we wanted to make sure that we were measuring for what they were trying to do sure. uh, as accurately as possible, um, and fielded that in uh, select neighborhoods in all six of the cities. We did that at two points in time, so one right before the interventions got started, and then one in the fall through the end of the year of 2017. So you set a baseline, and then you come back and you remeasure the same things at the end. That's how you can see if anything changed. And did it change for, for the better? Did it, did it stay the same? Did it even get worse? You'll have the, the data you need. I wanted to ask about a particular thing in the survey. You folks uh, didn't just go ahead, survey, say, everybody in Pittsburgh or a sample of everybody or everybody in Minneapolis. You focus particularly on certain communities in the survey work. Who did you focus on and why did you do that? Sure. So one of the things that we realized, you know, if you think about experiences that people have in policing, there are lots of neighborhoods where contact with police is pretty rare. And a lot of what you think about what's going on in policing is probably more based on the news than personal experience. And then there are other neighborhoods that are heavily policed. Those are areas where crime rates are highest, often where poverty is concentrated. And what we wanted to do with our resources, we're thinking, all right, if the national initiative is working, if it's changing things, where would you see that? Where would you have the best chance of measuring that? And those were based on everything new from, from the from the research literature, the places where crime and policing and also poverty were most concentrated. So we developed an index for each of the six cities of the top 10% of residential blocks on an index we created around 
crime rates, and then data we got from the census around uh, various measures of concentrated poverty and the like. And then from those, we drew a sample of households and we engaged local partners and went door to door to administer the survey. So it was not a picture, for example, of how all citizens of Pittsburgh think about the police. We were really zeroed in on the neighborhoods where policing was most present and, you know, uh, with a view towards crime control, you could say where, where policing was most needed. Right. So this is, I mean, and that is a very interesting approach. Uh, you, you really want to see where people are who are most likely to be touched by crime and by police and their actions to see how the police are viewed and whether policing uh, in its both effectiveness and in its tactics uh, changes any. And the people to ask are the people who will experience it the most. Right. And, you know, the sor- the shorthand within the often here in talking to, to people who are police officers or work in police departments is the idea of this problem as the people who need us most trust us least. And so as far as we could, we're thinking like, OK, well, what's how do we look in the data for where is needs us most in the cities in the way that at least the police are thinking when they use that phrase? And, you know, you said baseline, David. And one thing that I want to mention that was a very interesting and sometimes intense conversation with the police departments once we had this, this was not information that in a lot of ways they ever had, or not quantitatively mm-hmm. in this way. Obviously, they've yes. been doing community meetings. There had been protests. I mean, there's a lot of different ways uh, to know what the community is thinking of the police. But, you know, police departments are very data-driven, and I often think around when police are trying to do crime control objectives, they have all kinds of data about crime available to them. If they want to build trust, it's the different. data that they have that's equivalent, right, they yeah. don't have that. And, you know, the first conversations, I was part of many of them with the chiefs of police, once we had this baseline data, were often pretty tough because we were bringing some pretty difficult news to them. Maybe not surprising, but, you know, a lot of things are different when you see it in terms of data. Absolutely. And that thing you said, the people who need us the most trust us the least, that is the nub of the problem. And that was what the national initiative was really targeted at. I mean, uh, the, the police know and the community knows that that's where their services are needed. And uh, the lack of trust really stands in the way of a good relationship that is so crucial to fighting crime and making the city a good place to live. Fascinating stuff. Let's take a quick break here. We're with Jesse Janetta. He is Senior Research Fellow at the Urban Institute, and he was the head of the team that went in and evaluated the effectiveness of the national initiative to build community trust and justice in six cities nationwide. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more. Eyewitness testimony, confessions, fingerprints and forensics, all tools police and prosecutors rely on to put people in jail. But the research says these methods are far less reliable than we've been led to believe. In his 2012 book, Failed Evidence, Why Law Enforcement Resists Science, David Harris explores the myths and misconceptions surrounding high-tech policing and explains why they persist. To get your free copy of the book, become a Criminal Injustice member at patreon.com slash criminal injustice right now. We're celebrating our Patreon launch by giving away signed copies of Failed Evidence to the first 100 listeners who will commit to a monthly donation of $5 or more. 
But there are only 100 copies of the book up for grabs, and when they're gone, they're gone. So go to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice to claim yours now. All it takes is five bucks a month, and you'll be doing your part to support the show. Again, it's patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash criminalinjustice. Or just look for the Become a Patron button on our website at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Everyone wants to keep their home and family safe. Whether it's from a break-in, a fire, flooding, or a medical emergency, Simply Safe Home Security delivers award-winning 24/7 protection. With Simply Safe, you don't just get cameras and sensors, you get the best professional monitors in the business. They've got your back day and night ready to send police, fire, EMTs, whatever you need when you need them most, straight to your door. Now, when my family had the job of selling our family home after it was empty, we knew we needed a security system we could count on. My brother, the electrician, the guy who's the most tech savvy of all of us, he recommended we go with Simply Safe, and boy, am I glad we did. It was easy, it was affordable, and it was good. It performed, and we were safe. Simply Safe protects every inch of your home. You can set it up yourself in just 30 minutes. It's really easy. Then Simply Safe's professionals take over, monitoring your home 24/7 and ready to send help the moment they get an alarm. Plus, with Simply Safe, there's no long-term contract. There are no hidden fees and no installation costs. Right now, my listeners get a free home security camera when you purchase a Simply Safe system at simplysafe.com/injustice. You also get a 60-day risk-free trial, so there's nothing to lose. Visit simplysafe.com/injustice for your free security camera today. That's simplysafe. S I M P L I S-A-F-E, that's simplysafe.com slash injustice. Hi, David Harris here with you on Criminal Injustice, and my guest is Jesse Janetta of the Urban Institute. Along with his colleagues Nancy Levine and Jocelyn Fontaine, he was co-leader of the team that evaluated the National Initiative for Building Community Trust and Justice, uh, a, a nationwide effort to improve police community relations along with crucial crime measures. Uh, Jesse, before the break, we were talking about how the measurement was done why the survey was done the way it was. Let's come to grips now with what exactly was found. Uh, let's paint the national picture first on the sort of crime-related data, things like use of force, uh, traffic stops, and so forth. Sure. So and one of the things that was a top-line finding or that we were running into, which I think a lot of people who work in this space know, and I know you've had guests to talk about this, is the difficult situation with police department data. So in other words, I mentioned some of the things that we were asking for and what the departments were able to provide. And they were, you know, really doing what they could to get us all the data that we wanted. 
but there was a real mixed bag. So, for example, only three of the six sites were able to give us use of force data. Only one was able to give us pedestrian stop data. So one of the things you confront when you're trying to look at this is, particularly when you're trying to Mm -hmm. tell a story across the sites, often the data is not there or not comparable in a way that really makes that difficult. And so we had... um, On the administrative data, I would say a pretty mixed picture. We were doing, uh, I won't get too much into the details, but what's called a structural break analysis. So we were trying to look for changes in the trend. So for example, if you've got a city where arrests are, they were going down before the national initiative started and continued to go down, you don't want to say that the national initiative did that because in fact the trend was simply maintained. What you're looking at is changes that were uh, plausibly related in time uh-huh. to what the national initiative was doing. And we did see really uh, mixed results, I think, on the crime. We saw some kinds of crime. We were looking at violent and property. In a number of places, there was no impact. In you know some places, one was increasing and the other was decreasing. So I don't think we had um, a definite, consistent story in terms of what happened with crime, we did see uh, a decrease in use of force incidents in two of the three cities that were able to give us that data. Those were Minneapolis and Pittsburgh. But we didn't see any impact in any of the three cities that were able to give us that data on the racial disparity. And this uh, is a key thing, force. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Um, we only had uh, the one uh, site, P- Pittsburgh as well. And I should say, I know you're in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was able to give us, um, was one of the two sites that was able to give us the most complete data uh, that we'd asked for on those things. Um, so, but we saw inconsistent trends around what was going on in, in pedestrian stops. And in fact, we saw raci- greater racial disparity in pedestrian stops in Pittsburgh over the NI period. Um you know, arrests, though, did uh, decrease in three of the cities, uh, different from the trend that was already pre-existing, um, and we did see less in disparity in just one of them. But I think as you hear me talking, you have indicators going mm-hmm. in different directions. So I think when we're looking at the administrative data, this is not one where there's a clear story around impact. There are a mixture by city and by measure of positive signs and less positive signs and then signs of no change, which is different uh, very much so than what we saw in the community surveys. Right. So not a lot of change, some up, some down, some stays the same across things like use of force, traffic stops, and the racial disparities that already existed in those things. Those don't change a lot either, except sometimes even to get worse. Um, so talk about that survey data, and that is really what is targeted at measuring those trust factors like police legitimacy and so forth. Yeah, so when we went back and measured, and we were going same places, not necessarily uh, the same people that we were surveying, um, we drew independent samples, uh, but we saw when you aggregated across the six sites, Pretty consistent positive improvement, greater views of the procedural justice actions of police, greater views of uh, the legitimacy of police, a reduced perception of bias in the way that police were acting, greater uh, view of alignment between what police were doing and community uh, desires or priorities, and greater indicated willingness to part with the police. And I think we were 
surprised by how consistently positive that was. We were really not sure. I think the question of what's a realistic expectation for how much you can deliberately move the needle on these things and how long mm-hmm. it would mm-hmm. take were not things that I think we came into this with a sense. So even we thought, you know, it might be that these interventions are great, but it might be that the two-year period uh, that we're going to be able to look at, you know, might not be enough time. I mean, I, I, I will say personally, I was really not sure what we would see on that. But I will say that this was not the same story in all six of the cities. We did see variation in the degree to which we saw these positive changes that I'm describing across the whole six when we pool the sample. Right. We had four of the cities where at least some of those things got better. And when you, had, if I could interrupt yeah, for a second, when you please. say they got better, uh, what degree of change are we talking about in, say, uh, po- people believing that the police were fair and enforcing the law in a just way? How much change positive were we talking about? So it varied quite a bit, as you might imagine, on individual items, and we did scale them, so they're on average. But, you know, you would see, and you can see, and I imagine you'll put in in show notes uh, the report on this, but depending on the measure, you know, could be, you know, two, three, sometimes even uh, on the order of five percentage points difference when you're aggregating it. So some of them them were fairly substantial. Yeah, it's it's not a huge amount, but it's something. Right. And I think, you know, this is this is the back and forth because it's good to see positive improvement, obviously, like that was that's very promising. You know, the levels at which things had gotten to when we came back and remeasured were still, I think, far short of where you would want them to be. So this is yes. not, you know, this certainly it's not good to great. Um, right. It's, you know, very problematic to less problematic. But again, you know, I think that sense of momentum and even, you know, having had the opportunity to talk to both folks in the community on the police side and in some of the cities, I do think they sort of took it in that spirit that, you know, this is great if they were in one of the cities where they saw that improvement, but we still got a lot of work to do, which I, I would say is, is probably the right orientation to that. I don't think in any of these cities mm-hmm. you would say that the end point we got to is like, okay, we're fine. Now we want to be there. Yes. No. Right. And so, at least at least it gives you an indication of a start and the right direction in which to go. Now, I interrupted you a minute ago. You were about to break it down into individual cities as far as the survey data. And please, when you do that, uh, take the temperature of Pittsburgh for us particularly since we're here. Yeah, so I I know that this will be a difficult one. So Pittsburgh is the city actually out of the six where we did not see that positive improvement. In fact, on, on a couple of the measures that we were looking at, uh, things were actually worse at time two in Pittsburgh than they were when we started. Uh, Fort Worth was the other city where we didn't see improvement, but that was much more of the nature that we didn't really see uh significant differences between uh, the attitudes that we uh, that we measured at, at time one and time two. And then um, the other four cities had sort of different constellations of improvement. I would say the most across the board positive improvement was Stockton out in California. So this is interesting. Uh, Fort Worth, basically no change. Stockton, good positive change. Uh, three more cities, Birmingham, Minneapolis, and Gary, up some, uh, but Pittsburgh pretty much downward. I read those findings, too, and, of course, it's disappointing as a citizen of Pittsburgh. Um, 
what do you chalk that up to? Was there partic- was the police department's participation not full? Were, were there was it leadership changes? Because we know that there was a there was an important leadership change with yep. Chief McClay, the initial chief on this, uh, leaving the department uh, right in the middle of it. Uh, wh- what do you think it was about? Yeah, and I do want to be careful, and this is actually a good caveat for all of them. I mean, we were measuring change at two points in time, and the national initiative, we think, is an important thing that was happening in these cities, but other things were happening in the cities as well, not to mention all the things that were happening in the country. So, you know, as a good researcher, I want to be careful about how strong causal claims uh, I am making about these, either in general or or on Pittsburgh, sure. but I but mm-hmm. you definitely did mention uh, the change in leadership, and that's a real issue. We started from the top talking about in the site selection how important leadership commitment was at the city and in the police department, and police chiefs come and go and turn over pretty frequently. Uh, over the course of the national initiative, four of the six cities experienced a change in chief. And you said the phrase right in the middle. And so you think about we were in early 20 or mid 2015 yep. to two years later in 2017. And Pittsburgh did have a change in chief that really was right in the middle. And one of the things that you can really observe in doing this work with police departments is that change in leadership is very disruptive of change processes, even if the new chief coming in is fully supportive of it. And I think particularly around things like doing the reconciliation process in that community engagement or looking at policy changes, those are kinds of things that tend to pause when you're having a leadership change while the organization waits to see whether that will still be the direction. And right. I do think it would make sense the timing of that change. You know, I mentioned the reconciliation process. Pittsburgh started that in earnest in 2018. They were the latest of the six to start that. And so all of that work happened uh, after the second survey wave. So whatever change that may have contributed to, if any, we didn't get that in the survey. And I will say, by contrast, you know, Stockton had done by far and away the most of those reconciliation activities Mm. they had. I mentioned the listening sessions. They had more than 20 had been done by the time we went in and did that second survey wave. So you have some things you know, everybody got all the officers trained, as I mentioned. So that dosage was pretty consistent across them. But some of these other pieces, the timing of them and how much of them were done varied uh, a fair amount. Absolutely. And I can tell you here in Pittsburgh, you know, your your post-initiative measurement was in 2017. The very first, the, the beginning reconciliation session here in Pittsburgh did not take place until October or November of 2018. And as far as I know, there have only been a couple of follow-up listening sessions after that. And I don't know if there have been any more than those two. So maybe that did make a difference. But as you say, it's very hard to pin down exactly what make the, makes the difference. But we can see uh, really across every one of the measures on the survey that things didn't go up here in Pittsburgh. In fact, they went down during this period. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you hate to be the bearer of, of bad news on that. But, you know, I mean, I do think it's positive, And I know that they're, the volume of the reconciliation work that's been done. But Pittsburgh has been continuing to, to work on this. And so I think that that's, uh, that's a positive. You know, I mean, I think 
all of the cities, I mean, one of the things you hear when people are invested in this work is, I mean, this is this is probably a decade-long endeavor at the very least, and you have to keep going. And particularly, mm-hmm. you know, when you're doing trust-building work around anything, some of it is what you build and starting to do new things. And a key thing over time is what you maintain, and both in terms of commitment and new things you put in place. And so, you know, whether it's a city that had positive findings on the survey or or not, I think that need to stay the course over time. You know, one of the things broadly as we were doing, you know, stakeholder interviews that really struck me is the sense of historical memory in yes. the community is very different than it is in the police department. And police departments can sometimes be much more kind of present oriented about what's going on. And, you know, community members are thinking about this in terms of the arc that they've experienced over decades and, and what the police and department has done. family members have experienced, you know, it go, the memory is truly long on those kinds of experiences with police departments. And I'll tell you something interesting. I sat in on some of the police training here in Pittsburgh uh, for procedural justice, and I heard Lots of long memory in police officers about yep. things within the department. That was what they remembered well. So apparently when you feel unjustly treated, there are long memories, and it doesn't matter who you are or where it's coming from. Yeah, no, that was something that came out very strongly once they started doing the the police officer trainings is this idea Mm -hmm. of internal procedural justice. So, you know, and you can imagine the way that the officers would articulate this, the argument they're like, well, you want us to go and treat members of the community in these ways. And often, you know, in the main, they're like, these sound good. However... Much of this does not sound like the way that we are that treated we by treated, our supervisors. Yes. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the training teams in each of the cities that were doing this talked about that a lot when we were interviewing them. The fact that it was going to be critical for the maintenance of this to identify and fix some of those internal issues and get that treatment in alignment. Otherwise, they felt that really had the potential to to undermine the procedural justice work, which makes sense. I mean, nobody likes to be told by their bosses to go treat people in a way that's completely different than how they are treated. Absolutely. And I I have to say, I want to make sure to add that I I have met and I know Chief Schubert here in Pittsburgh, Chief Scott Schubert, who took over in 2016, and he has always been fully committed to carrying this work out uh, and the leadership change uh, just happens, and then it, things do slow down. So I'm not trying to blame anybody for that. Uh, it's just that's a factor I think we have to acknowledge. Yeah, no, I think that was why I wanted to make the point about, you know, it's it's not as, it's it's not going from a leader who's committed to a leader who's not yes, committed. Absolutely. It's not that that is mm-hmm. the only thing that causes issues. It's just, you know, leadership just changes are disruptive yeah. to organizations. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, to bring it to bring it full circle, if uh, if the mayor of uh, a next town anywhere uh, calls you up and says, Jesse, I've read your reports. I know what Urban does. Uh, I want to think about whether to do this in my own community with my own police department. Um, what do you say to him? Uh, how would you tell him to go uh, forward uh, from there? What Should he do it? Should she not? What's the call? Well, I think, uh, you know, when you have promising results here, 
I think you're in a position to say, yes, I think you should. If I mean, if trust building, I, first of all, trust building is a key part of effective policing right now. So you should be doing something. And there's every reason to believe that yet that every city has these issues. I think that, you know, the results, although they're complex and all the ways we've been talking about suggest that there's something promising. Of course, I'm a researcher and going to say, you know, we, I think, did good evaluative work uh-huh. on this that I feel proud of. I don't think it's the last word. I would suggest that anybody taking this on think about how they're going to evaluate it locally. I mm-hmm. think we as evaluators made progress in what we know on this, but I don't think we've put the question of effectiveness and how this works to bed. And I think it's important to keep measuring that. I think the comprehensiveness of the national initiative is something you should think about a lot. I know that, you know, trainings of various kinds are often a go-to around police reform, but I think it's important to think about how are you going to make sure that you're not just trying to get your individual officers to do something different, but thinking about how you're going to reflect that in policy and in community engagement. And I think there's two other, if we have time, Yes. points that that really struck me that I want to make. One is I want to talk about how they constructed the training teams. They didn't, none of the six cities turned this over um, to their regular training operation. All of them handpicked the officers to do this. And we often talk about credible messengers in anti-violence work and reentry work in other contexts. And this this wasn't the vocabulary used in the National Initiative. What they were really doing is looking for who are our credible messengers within this department? Who can we imagine standing up in front of training class after training class of officers in this department, many of whom are going to be very skeptical of this and have credibility to get this material across. I sat in on the training for trainers. It was pretty clear to me, I would say, that at least some of the departments picked people who were pretty skeptical, but that put them in the position of having to win them over. And if you do that selection right, if you can convince those officers that these concepts are the way forward and they're right and really get them to buy in, they're then communicating that to the officers will be as impactful. We did training assessment surveys. You could really see this coming through that. Absolutely. I think that really paid off. And what a lot of the departments then created is not only those trainers, but also internal subject matter experts who deeply understood what these concepts were. And for example, Minneapolis created a procedural justice unit staffed by a lot of those folks to then, once you get the training done, think about what do we need to do next? What are other places we could take these concepts? So I think that that's really critical, a really critical investment in who's got the credibility to get people internally to buy into this. And one of the things that a replication of this, especially if you wanted to do the big thing, could probably think about is how to do the really structured communication and engagement with the community and front load more of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I mentioned the reconciliation process, which is one of the primary vehicles for engaging the community in the national initiative. That didn't exist when it started. They had to to build it. Mm -hmm. Whereas the procedural justice trainings were there, there. the curriculum was developed, it had been tested. So that started right out of the gate. And, you know, it took at least a year for the reconciliation process to come on. And I think from the community perspective, when we interviewed and talked to people on the community side as part of the evaluation, they experienced it as first big meeting, here's this big initiative that's coming, 
And after that, it seemed to be very internally focused in the police department. And yes. in some cases, they said, you know, we aren't getting a lot of information about this. And I think that there, you know, there were obviously reasons for that, again, because, you know, the things that were really ready to go from the beginning and already field tested were much more focused at that individual officer level. But, you know, thinking about how you can make sure, and, you know, I, I think it's it's worth thinking about, is it better to lay that foundation within the department uh, before you start doing some of the community engagement? But to have a plan now that the pieces of the national initiative, if you want them, all exist and have been specified, you know, you can think about how to sequence them now that they're all available to you from the beginning. Because it did, it did create some, I think, challenges, and they had to sort of re-engage community members in it after it had been going for a while. And that's always harder than when you've got a clear plan for what this is going to mean and how community members can be involved uh, from the jump. And I, you know, 1.0 is not in a position to do that, but going forward, it's, that's different. Right. So if you had if you had a next iteration, go for the heavy community and reconciliation work first, lay the foundation, then there'll be openness to the rest. Jesse Janetta is a senior policy fellow at the Justice Center of the Urban Institute in Washington. He served as a co-leader of the team along with his colleagues Nancy Levine and Jocelyn Fontaine evaluating the national initiative to build community trust and justice. Thanks for being my guest on Criminal Injustice. Thank you, David. And now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, Judicial Section. This edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, which comes to us from the Indianapolis Star and the ever-trusty ABA Journal News Online, concerns Circuit Court Judge Andrew Adams of Clark County, Indiana. And for those of you who remember the 2004 comedy, Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle, we now have an answer to the important question, What happens when the two guys going to White Castle aren't a couple of high 20-somethings, but instead a couple of bar-hopping judges? The answer? Nothing good. Actually, something very bad. It all started in the early hours of the morning in the spring of 2019 when Judge Adams and one of his judge colleagues were in the big city of Indianapolis for an Indiana judges conference. Somehow, well, maybe it's just being away from home or just being with friends or just whatever it is that inspires drinking to excess. Judge Adams and judicial friend found themselves trying to get into the Red Garter Gentlemen's Club, a strip club, after a whole bunch of other bars. But they were too late, so they went back to their hotel to get some rest. No, they didn't. They were destined for another stop, of course, because when you're drunk in the early hours of the morning, roaming the city, what calls out to you more strongly than the desire for sliders? Yes, so off they went to the nearby White Castle. Details are scarce, even all these months later, but we know this. Somehow, Judge Adams got into a fight with two other men at White Castle. There was some shoving, kicking, punching, and then one of these two other men decided they were not about to get beaten up. One of them pulled a gun. Judge Adams was shot. His fellow judge was shot twice in the chest. 
Yeah, not funny anymore. Suddenly, not a drunken, hilarious adventure. Both judges were hospitalized and survived, thankfully. The other two men were apprehended and charged. And so was Judge Adams. With his indictment on seven felonies, Adams was suspended from his job, with pay, of course, by the Indiana Supreme Court. His fellow judge faced no charges. In September of 2019, Judge Adams, now fully recovered, pled guilty to a single count of misdemeanor battery, admitting in court to kicking one of the other men, but nothing else. Both he and the prosecutors were very close-mouthed on what had actually happened. Adams did express great remorse and apologized for his actions, including to his children and his family. He was sentenced to 365 days in jail, with all but two days suspended and credit for two days he had served in jail earlier. No word yet on whether he'll go back on the bench or perhaps suffer some other sanction for professional violations, such as bringing disrepute on the judiciary and the legal profession. At the very least, it's hard to see Judge Adams sitting in judgment of all the many drunken and intoxicated people who parade through every court everywhere by the tens of thousands every day for things they did while drunk and intoxicated. After all, judge not, lest ye also be judged. Right, Judge? That's Lawyers Behaving Badly Judicial Section, and that's it for this episode of Criminal Injustice. Remember to subscribe to Criminal Injustice so you can always get us in your favorite podcast app every time and never miss an episode, a news bonus, or another story of a lawyer behaving badly. I am David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Criminal Injustice is written by David Harris, produced by Josh Rollerson, and supported by listener contributions. Go to patreon.com slash criminal injustice to become a member and access the premium content feed. Find past episodes, show notes, and more at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. We've always understood that being a police officer can be difficult, but we're seeing an urgent warning sign. Police suicides are on the rise. Just how bad is the problem? Why is it happening? And what can be done? That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com. Criminal Injustice.